And sometimes in your life uh, you come across news, uh, you, you get in on news uh, that radically reshapes your perspective on life. News that maybe people around you aren't in on, but you are. Uh, I had one such moment in the fourth year of Bible college. It happened at 12 Little Queen Street where we were living. It was a Tuesday afternoon. I was about to head out uh, to play rugby with the all-conquering fourth year team. It took us four years to get to the all-conquering status. In first year we didn't win a game and slowly we built up this uh, powerful team. And uh, there we were, about to head out. And uh, by this time on Tuesday afternoons, my mind left everything to do with uh, Bible college and everything else. It was all about rugby for about an hour and a half. And so uh, at this point, I wasn't expecting something to come in that would uh, change my thoughts, change my perspective radically, but it did. And it came in the form of a small little piece of plastic about this size and it had a little strip down the middle of it. And it said that uh, Elizabeth, my wife, was pregnant uh, with our first child. It was an amazing moment. I remember uh, dancing around the room and uh, I went off to play this game and I played like a champion. <laughs> or at least I thought I did. I probably played terribly, but uh, I didn't care. I had this huge grin on my face running around and nobody else on the field had a clue what I was so excited about. There are moments in life like that, aren't there, there where, where something comes along where you're in on something and maybe even people around you don't know about it and it's changed everything about the way you view life. Uh, we have an example of that, I think, in the passage that we are looking at today, Ephesians chapter 3 and in verse 1, Paul describes himself and I think he describes himself in such a way that when you look at it at first you think, how could anybody want to live this way, to describe themselves this way? And as far as Paul's concerned, it's because he is in on something really big that has changed everything for him. Here's how he describes himself in verse 1 of Ephesians 3. He says, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ, for the sake of you Gentiles. This morning, as, uh, as we pick up this letter to the Ephesians that we left a few months back, a letter that Paul wrote from prison, uh, we reach an account of uh, Paul describing how he ended up in this position he was in. He was in prison as he wrote the letter. He's telling us how he ended up there. And more than that, he's telling us how he ended up with a life that would see him end up in prison. And here's what he says, Paul, the prisoner of Christ, for the sake of you Gentiles. And as he gives his account of how he's ended up in prison, it has almost nothing to do with the Jerusalem authorities that have put him there and has everything to do with Christ Jesus. This one verse captures perfectly Paul in a nutshell. He is a man controlled and compelled by Christ Jesus. He is Jesus' prisoner. And he is this way for the sake of the nations of the world, for the Gentiles, people like you and I. Paul, in describing himself, says, I am owned by another, Christ Jesus, for the sake of another, the world. Now, as I read that verse, I was thinking, why on earth would anyone want to live that way? It sounds so powerless, doesn't it, to be owned by another for the sake of another altogether. And uh, why would someone live that way and why, why would we want to follow that sort of lifestyle? Well, that's what today's passage is about. Paul is trying to explain how he ended up in this place, in prison, in Jerusalem, for Jesus. So, uh, if you haven't got it open, it's worth opening it now. Ephesians 3. And it's page 1174 of the Church Bibles. And as we continue this series in Ephesians, we really reach almost the middle point 
of this letter and we come to a a real turning point in the letter. From uh, chapter 4 onwards, Paul will outline, basically he will expand on this one verse, Ephesians 3 verse 1. He will explain what it means to live as a prisoner of Christ for the sake of others. What it looks like, as he says in Ephesians 4 verse 1, to live a life worthy of the calling he's received. Living worthily as a church, living radically different lives to the world around us, radically similar lives to Jesus in our homes, in our workplaces, in the heavenly realms. He'll cover it all in these coming chapters. That's what's coming. But for today, what he does for us in verses 1 to 13 of chapter 3 is he explains what would lead a person to want to do that. And it's crucially important to get that right because as as Paul goes on to explain all these things in the coming chapters, if you haven't got clearly why he would want to live that way, then there's no way we would follow his example. So let's have a look at his explanation. And as far as he's concerned, there's really three things that you need to see clearly, three bits of information you need to be in on if you're going to shape your life the way he has in verse 1. We need to see clearly the gift God has given his world. We need to see how he delivers that gift and we need to see why he has delivered that gift. So firstly to the gift God gives his world and we're going to look at uh, verse 6 of chapter 3. But before we get there, I want to take you to another part of the Bible to, to see where Paul almost symbolically acts out what this gift is that we're meant to see clearly. It's Acts chapter 21 and verses 28 and 29, which is page 1118 of the church Bibles. And in these two verses we see the very incident that landed him in prison as he writes this letter. The authorities in Jerusalem say this. They say, Men of Israel, help us. This man Paul, who teaches all men everywhere against our people and our law and this place, And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple area and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul and they assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple area. In these two verses, we witness Paul symbolically unwrap the gift God is giving his world. He unwraps it by doing something that had never been done before. Paul takes Trophimus, a Greek, a Gentile, right to the very centre of the temple, a place uh, where the Jews met their God, a place where Gentiles had no right to be, anywhere near. He goes through all the old barriers, all the old divisions, the rules, and he says to Trophimus, you and I are going to pray and we're going to pray together, Jew and Gentile, and we're going to pray to God in this place. In doing so, he may as well have planted a bomb in the very centre of the temple, the centre of Judaism, this old system. Paul says by doing this, God is doing something very new. And in doing it, he reveals two huge aspects of this gift that God is giving his world. Firstly, God's gift is a new community, a new togetherness, as we see in Ephesians 3, verse 6. Have a look at that verse. This mystery is that through the gospel... The Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Paul says if we see the gift God is giving his world clearly, we'll see three big things. We will see that Jews and Gentiles, the nations, people like us, 
are heirs together with God's people. All the promises of God, the promise he made way back in Genesis 12 to one man, Abraham, that he would be a great nation and that he would bless all nations, that promise is being unpacked, unwrapped right at this moment as Trophimus and Paul pray. Not only are we as the nations in on what God is doing, we are his children with all the rights of children. Not only are we heirs together, secondly we are members together. What God is up to in this world, we are in on. And thirdly, we are told in this verse, we are sharers together. We have a share in the promise of God. The promise that brings us to the second amazing part of this gift. Not only is God creating a new community, he is creating a home for that community. Right at the heart of God's promise to his world, is that we as the nations now have a share in this new community but more than that, it is a community that God himself dwells in. God is building a house, not a building, but a community of people that he will dwell amongst. If you look at verse 6, you've got these three aspects of their togetherness, this new community, but all three of them are summed up in those last three words in the verse. They are in Christ Jesus that's what holds it together. I was thinking about that uh, this week and I was reminded of uh, my father who's an engineer. Um, his firm spent a lot of time designing the Olympic Stadium in Sydney and he's very excited about it. Well, before it was built and after it was built I heard about it endlessly. PowerPoint presentations, you name it, I've seen it. But uh, he was so excited. Any time we went to see a football match or something at the uh, ground, he'd, he'd point out this stadium and the amazing design, but then he'd point to one thing in particular right at the end, this huge structure. There was this pin. It wasn't a little pin. It was a big pin, admittedly, but uh, there it was right at the end of the stadium. And he says, you know what? If, if we pulled out that pin, the whole thing would fall apart. It would just collapse on the ground. He was really excited about this. I said, Dad, that doesn't sound like a good idea. He said, don't worry. It's impossible to pull out the pin. But uh, I think that's the picture here. What was impossible for us as humanity, Jew and Gentile together, impossible to hold together, God does it in Christ Jesus. The whole building is held together, as he says in Ephesians 2, 21 and 22. And as far as Paul is concerned, the only reason we would live the way he does in Ephesians 3, verse 1, owned by another, for the sake of another, is if you see that clearly, if you see what God is doing through his son. So that's the gift. Secondly, we need to see how he delivers that gift. And we're going to look at verses 2 to 8. Firstly, verse 2. Essentially what Paul is saying in this verse is he says, let me show you how God goes about what he does, how he does his business. And in doing that, he wants to explain, let me show you how I ended up here in prison for you. He gives us three big things but really what he's doing is he's drawing on his own experience. He's saying, these are the conclusions I draw from what's happened to me. This is how God works. And so it's important for us to know the experience that he's drawing his conclusions from. So let's turn together to uh, Acts chapter 22, verses 6 to 10 to see this amazing experience that I think everything that Paul says in his letters hangs on what happened on this day. Paul says, About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? 
Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. That's the moment that drives everything about who Paul is and he draws three conclusions from it for us. Firstly, in verses 3 and 4 of Ephesians 3, he says, God has made his plan known clearly. He has unveiled what he is doing in this world. Purposes that up until this point were impossible for us to see. They were a mystery, Paul says, but now they have been made crystal clear. God's plan... His mystery unveiled is none other than Christ Jesus, the crucified risen Lord that he saw on the road to Damascus. That is God's big plan. plan that Paul saw very clearly and he says is just as clear for us now. As far as Paul is concerned, if, if we were to ask ourselves or be asked by someone else, what is God doing in this world? What is his plan for this world? His answer is Jesus. If people were to ask us, why why won't God act in a particular situation? Why won't he deal with that thing, that problem? His answer is Jesus. If we want to know what God is like and how he operates, his answer is Jesus. God has decisively revealed his hand to this world. So that's the first thing he concludes. Secondly, he concludes that God has made known this plan through very obvious means. Have a look at verse 5. He has done it in history and he has announced it to specific people. There was a time, verse 5 says, when this gift was not unwrapped, was hidden, but that's changed. In other generations it was not known. It was a mystery, but, but not a mystery in the sort of Inspector Morse type mystery or Sudoku or something like that. If you're clever enough you can do the sums and work out what the numbers are and, you know, it's that sort of mystery. I don't know about you, but Sudoku just leaves me feeling stupid rather than clever. That might be my problem, but uh, it's not that sort of mystery. Paul isn't saying if you're clever enough, you'll work this out. It's a mystery because God has not made it known. But now, Paul says, in the immediate present of writing this letter, at the moment of Jesus' death and resurrection, God has pulled back the wrapping and showed his plan to his world. He has used history and he has announced it to specific people. You see there, he has unveiled it to God's holy apostles. Now the word holy here isn't to do with the fact that they were superior, that God looked for the smartest, the best, the morally upstanding and said, they're the people I need to take this message. Now holy here is about being set apart, that's what the word means. God has set apart a point in history to reveal his plan and now he has set apart people. He chooses a small and distinctive group of people, the disciples, Paul, James, people he sets apart as his eyewitnesses to his risen son. He chooses them to testify to this mystery from that point on. And as we read the New Testament together this morning, as you look down at the Bible right now and you see that verse, verse 5, you are hearing that testimony. We see how God makes his plan known. I think there are big implications for us in this. God has chosen a point in history and apostles to deliver his message. Do you realise what you are reading? 
They are not merely the words of men. They are God's revelation of his great gift to this world. You know, often I think we'll hear from both within and without the the Christian camp uh, the call not to trust, especially Paul's words, that, uh, you know, accusations are made that uh, he hates Jewish people, he can't be trusted. He's a misogynist, he hates women, he can't be trusted. He's homophobic, he can't be trusted. He's obsessed with guilt, he's distorted the simple message of Jesus, he can't be trusted. But God is saying to us in this verse, verse 5, if you refuse to listen to Paul, you refuse to listen to Christ. And as we read and explore this passage together today, it is not I who am speaking, it is Christ himself through Paul. Do you believe that? Because that is how he delivers his gift to us. That's Paul's second conclusion. His third one in verses 7 and 8 is that God has revealed this purpose through the least obvious people. Just in case we'd fallen into the trap and thinking there was something special about Paul, he makes clear of it in these verses. In verse 7 he says, The mere fact that I have been led in on what God is doing is an act of grace. The mere fact that I'm allowed to be a servant of that message is an act of grace. And that I'm able to do that, able to serve him, is an act of grace. He makes the point even clearer in verse 8. He says, God has chosen me the least. Or literally the the Greek word uh, that uh, the Bible translates here, Paul's made up a word to show just how dodgy a candidate he is for this job. It's the leastest. God has chosen the leastest to speak of his absolute best, the unfathomable riches of Christ. Paul, as he describes himself in 1 Timothy 1, the worst of sinners, is given that job, that responsibility. And if you read much of the New Testament, you will realise that God continues to work that way. He continues to use the least to speak of his best. People like you and I, As uh, 1 Corinthians 2 puts it, uh, of a group of Christians in Corinth, Paul says, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards, not many influential, not many of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. He chose the least things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. He says it again in 2 Corinthians 4, speaking of us, he says, we're like jars of clay. The message we have is wonderful and powerful, but we're just a battered pot. An old Australian bishop, Alf Stanway, uh, when speaking to some ordinands in uh, Pittsburgh, as they're about to head out into a lifetime of ministry, he said this to them. If other people knew you, like God knows you, all your faults, all your vain thoughts, all your sins and all the things in your heart, all the wrong thoughts you've ever had, would they trust you with the kind of work that God trusts you with? Here is the supreme confidence that God has in his own grace that he'll take the likes of you and me and Paul and give you the privilege of being his saints. How did Paul get to where he is in 3 verse 1? It is by grace that he is who he is and so it is with us. If God has shown you his gift, his beautiful son, 
You too are called to be where Paul is. The final thing that Paul wants us to see clearly is why God has done this, why he delivers his gift this way in verses 9 to 12. And really we're going to see two big reasons that God gives. The first one in verse 9, he has chosen to do this to make plain the purpose of God, the community of Christ, to everyone. He wants that known to everyone in the whole world. God has done this so that the world would see clearly the riches that Christ offers to make plain that Christ is where life is found, to make plain to our world that this long-for togetherness, this unity that we long for as a world is only found in him. Into a world where every opportunity it has to work together, to, to be one, it blows. Every now and then our world has a chance to work together rather than to fight. Every now and then our world has a chance to maybe deal with some of its problems rather than just create more. And every time these chances come, we blow it. It's extraordinary to see how little progress humanity makes on its own. But God has delivered his gift to this world, his plan, his new community in Christ. He intends to unite all things under one head And so brothers and sisters and members of this church, do not underestimate what you are in on. As we proclaim the riches of Christ and as we live out Christ's new community here in Fullwood, we are making plain God's plan for this suburb, this city, this world, a plan long hidden but now very much clear. It is as we live out the mystery of this new community that Christ will win his world. The second big reason he has chosen to do it this way is in verse 10. He is putting on display his manifold wisdom to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. God is in the process of displaying his great many-coloured work of art. That's literally what the word manifold means, many colours. This is God's great work of art. He is holding it up in triumph to the angels and the evil principalities in the heavenly realms. And you see what he holds up? as his great victory banner, his masterpiece, the church. As the rulers and authorities look in on the history of our universe, what they see is the richly diverse community God is gathering in Jesus. They see it all over the earth and they see it in local gatherings like this one. And as God reveals this gift of his son and his community to the angels, they stand in awe of his spectacular wisdom. They look in on us this morning, gathering as we are, and they tremble. Do you believe that? They stand in awe, not because we are glorious, but because of the sheer power of God's grace. God has revealed this amazing gift so that the evil principalities and powers in the heavenly realms, powers that Ephesians 6 tells us are waging battle against us even now, he displays it to them so that they can see the very wisdom by which they were defeated. We are his victory banner right now as we meet, saying God wins. They see God's victory at the very moment it happened, at the death and resurrection of Jesus and then they see the flow on of that all throughout history. I don't know uh, much about boxing but uh, a few years ago I was told about a a boxing term called the forgotten arm 
And essentially what it is, the, the boxer will uh, take his opponent on, he'll just keep hitting with the same arm again and again and again. And eventually his opponent gets so used to defending against this arm, he just completely forgets the guy has another arm. And that's the one that deals the killer blow in the bout. The church is God's forgotten arm in the heavenly realms. His decisive evidence that he has won, is winning and will win. Satan and his minions look in on us this morning and they tremble. Do you believe that? As we share in our church family prayer this week, as we meet in small groups, as uh, just individuals meet for coffee and to pray together all over Sheffield, as we give the gospel ministry, as we do all of these things, it says God has won. And so brothers and sisters in Christ, let me encourage you to place an extraordinary high value on what you are in on here in this church. You are part of the very centre of history. Paul says to the struggling Ephesian church, don't let your circumstances confuse reality. You are the news of all the ages. Truth be known, if uh, the BBC was looking for the story of the day today, they would be here amongst us. Do you believe that? Because that's where the heavenly realms, that's what they're looking at right now. They're looking at us. If you are a Christian living for Christ, you, my friend, are at the crux of history. Do you believe that? You are not living out an anonymous life in leafy forward. You are at the centre of what God is doing in this world. We are the news of the hour in the heavenly realms. And so when Paul calls on us, as he will in Ephesians 4 to 6, to be humble and gentle, to forgive each other, to be patient, to be wise, when he says don't lie, don't gossip, don't slander, don't get angry, when he says don't harbour bitterness or grudges, when he calls on husbands and wives and children and parents and workers and employers to behave in certain ways, it couldn't be more important, could it? Because this is what's going on at the centre of history. Have you ever thought of your life that way? How you live and how you operate in this community in the coming week couldn't be more important because God has chosen you, the least, to speak of his absolute best, his son. And that is how we end up where Paul is in chapter 3 verse 1. Compelled by another for the sake of another. And for this reason, Paul bends his knee to pray and that's what we're going to do now. Let's pray.